we have a lot in 1 Peter 3. We're going to take 1 Peter 3 in two parts, like we've done the other chapters. In 1 Peter 3, there are a handful of pretty significant topics. Uh, we're going to talk about submission this morning. That's always a wonderful topic that Pastor Rob talking about. And the church members love discussing as well. <laughs> and, uh, and next week, suffering and the uh, alleged descent of Jesus into hell. Spend a bit of time on that. And then also spend a bit of time on that phrase, now baptism saves you. So talk about those uh, as well. But primarily next week will be suffering for uh, sick righteousness and you know the famous text, First Peter three fifteen, about always being ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Uh, see that in its proper context. But a word to the wives and to husbands; those words we'll be looking at this morning. Before we do that, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our wonderful God, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to, to dig deeply into the, the riches of, of your word. We pray that our conversation here would glorify you. We thank you that through your word you change us. We pray that by your spirit we would be so changed even uh, just a little bit that we might be more conformed to the image of the Son, that we might... Think more about our pursuit of holiness and the one who has saved us for himself. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I want to go back to chapter 2 briefly because this section is connected to the previous section. You have in chapter 3 the word likewise, and there's that language be subject to. So, this reminds us that that there's something before 1 Peter 3 that he is referring to. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So there is the call we saw uh, last week, to submit to authorities. God has given uh, the world earthly authorities. Paul speaks of them in Romans 13 as servants of the Lord. The magistrate is a servant of the Lord. He wields a sword, or as the minister of God's word, wields the sword of the Spirit. But both are servants, and they have their respective spheres of sovereignty and we are to submit to them. And verse 18 of chapter 2, Servants, be subject to your, own, to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So there's that command to the servants who have masters. They are supposed to submit to their masters. And not only when the masters are pleasant masters, uh, but even those that are unjust so we have a similar situation here in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word 
by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Let me read the rest. We're going to go through chapter or verse 7, so read the rest of it here as well. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so there's the beginning of this section, that command that Peter offers. This is very similar to Paul in Ephesians. We're talking here about some of the uh, uh, household conduct, okay, in Ephesians 5. Paul gives counsel to various um, categories of people, you know, husbands and wives and employers, employers masters, servants, uh, parents and children. Here, there are, there are words in a similar light. And we must note that here it's be subject to your own husbands, okay? So here it's, a, it's subject to a husband, all right? This is not just any male. You, if you're a grown woman, you see a male, okay, I have to submit to that individual. It's not just any adult man. And we, we laugh at that, but there's, there are a lot of people who follow this mentality. I remember teaching uh, and, you know, going through the, the Bible. And it was a high schooler, and she grew up in the family that she was under the conviction that she had to submit to any adult male. And I thought, well, that's... It's going to get you in some trouble. There's a lot of conflict between different males. Um, but here it's subject to be subject to your own husbands. Okay? So it's not just any husband. Not, you just see a husband over there. Well, I'm gonna, i got to go submit to him. It's, it's to your own husband. This does not mean that wives or other women do not need to be subject to other legitimate authorities who happen to be men or who happen to be husbands. So you, you don't get to say, well, that you know, governor is not my husband, so I don't have to submit to, to him. Well, you don't submit to him as your husband, but there is, as we saw earlier in chapter 2, the uh, command to be subject to other authorities. Likewise, when it comes to, um, you know, in the church context, women and well, the whole church really submit to the elders of the church. Just because he might not be your husband doesn't mean you say, well, he's not my husband, so I don't have any kind of legitimate subjection to him. So we need to be clear here what, what Peter is saying, what he's, what he's not saying. And really hard to hear is that these husbands may be disobedient or even disbelieving. Just like in the previous context with the slave subjecting themselves to a master that is unjust, here we have an indication that a husband, in this context, might not be a believer. Where in the beginning of this text do we see evidence that this is not an, a believing husband, or at least by practice is not a believing husband? Where? 
where in you know, 1 Peter 3 do we see evidence that Peter has likely in mind an unbelieving husband? Well, verse 1. Yeah, what in verse 1 tells so, us that? So that, if, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. Right. Okay. So Peter has in mind wives in need to be subject to their husbands, even those who do not obey the word. This might be men who, uh, who make a profession of faith, but in practice, they don't obey the word. Or, uh, perhaps even likely, more likely, this is a scenario where the wife is married to an unbelieving husband. And it could be very similar to the kind of context in which um, Paul was speaking in 1 Corinthians. So you have uh, two unbelieving spouses, and then one of them becomes a believer. And the question arose in 1 Corinthians 7, what, what do we do? Now that you just said that you're not supposed to be unequally yoked in 1 Corinthians 6, and now here we have an, an unequal yoke, what do we do? Do we divorce? Do we separate from our unbelieving spouse? And he says, no. Uh, if the spouse is uh, content to live with you at peace, let it be. You might have a sanctifying influence on an individual. Um, so that might be what is going on here as well. It, there's an unbelieving spouse, in this case it's the husband, who is who is our head, and that makes things pretty difficult. Um, so let me ask this question. When can a wife refuse to be subject to her unbelieving or even believing husband? Are there, are there times when a wife can refuse? Okay. Can we throw, throw out some examples? He's asking her to do something that's against God's word. Okay. It's against what God commands. Yeah, so what what might be an example of the husband saying, well, if you have to do this, and she says, uh, I can't do that. Engaging with him in some unlawful enterprise. Engaging with him in some unlawful enterprise. Either as established by God. Okay, that's just a great way of saying it. Unlawful Either either unlawful against God's law or the law of the civil authorities as a point over it, because that is part of God's law. Hmm. Or when he's abusive. When he's abusive, yeah, that's that's a good example. Or or drunk. Or drunk. (laughs) So she shouldn't join him in his drunkery. She also shouldn't make herself subject to his rage if he's you know, an angry alcoholic. Isn't there, isn't there another, and I can't remember, Michael, there's a scripture somewhere that says, you know, we talked about this, that, you know, they shouldn't become, it might be right where you were talking about, um, but they should not be, it's okay, if it, no, it's not okay, but if you're unequally yoked, you have an unbelieving husband, you know, by virtue of the woman, you know, and her virtue and her following the, the word and living her life accordingly might affect the husband. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's First Corinthians seven. Okay. Uh, it's how do you how do you know um, wife if you don't have a you don't have a sanctifying influence on the right. on. So I think yeah. and I think anything that goes against the word of God, whether it's and in, 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 of course the word talks about overindulging in multiple things um, is is sinful behavior. Um, and so I don't think that I think at any point in that time, whether it be something that's 
you know, we can overindulge in or is against the law, like he said, uh, probably is a good place to, to stay in that realm. Mm -hmm. I think you, you, you can't, uh, you follow, follow those, I think you follow that, I think that would be pretty close. So like, um, Keith, as you were saying with the obeying, even the magistrate, it's like, uh, you know, if he wants to um, have her join in his you know, tax evasion or uh, right. cheat on his taxes, she ought to say, well, honey, no, you can't do that. Maybe if he forbids her from, he's put his foot down, you can't go to church. Well, that's, that's a significant problem, isn't it? And uh, one that she would feel quite, keen, quite keenly but in her own quiet, respectful way, would would ought to should 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 refuse and say, "Sorry, you know, I love you, but I serve a higher head, and he bids me to worship him." I don't want to speak lightly of like how that conversation would go. Obviously, that requires some counsel and um, you know working through, even <coughs> practicing uh, with someone who's trustworthy to walk through that. It's hard. But obedience to the Lord is, is hard sometimes. We had an example of that. There was a, I don't know what house that they lived here in, in Woodland. This has been going back a few years. But there was a teenage girl who was being led by the Lord. You know, I think she had been you know, pricked by the Holy Spirit. But anyway, she came to church. Her parents refused. Uh, absolutely it disobeyed her to come to mm -hmm. the church. Come anywhere, any church. And so she snuck over here on Sundays and... Um, Remember, who, I don't know if it was Josh, maybe it might have went back as far as Jim Brayden. I can't remember, but anyway, I know the elders at the time, and everybody sat and went with her. And, and um, I still don't know where it happened to that girl, but I mean, she she was doing what you know God was compelling her to do, even though it was against her. She was still living under her mm -hmm. parents' rule, under her parents' house, yeah. the authority of her father, um, but she was doing the right thing by seeking out God. Um, it just it just came to my mind, yeah. So that might be that's kind of an example of. Disobedience in one fashion, not a married woman, not a wife. But, uh, well, actually, that anticipates uh, my next question, which is, what about what are those who are not married? Now, I'm not subject to any man, so I can do whatever I want. Woman power. Live it up. Live it up. Live it up. Live it up, <laughs> yeah. Live it up until you know some man subdues you. No. <laughs> Does what? What of a woman who's not married? Still subject. Okay, so if she's in the household, she's still under the headship of her father, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what were you saying, Keith? She's still subject to the uh, God's law, right? <laughs> yeah. Which states also that she's subject to civil authority. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when she's approaching a, a relationship, she should take it in mind with, do I want to subjugate, subjugate myself to this person in a way as a, as a wife. Yeah. So uh, she's always under the headship of Christ. So she always is to serve Christ, just like all Christians are to serve Christ above all. Uh, but you're right, Keith, and this is one of the questions very early on that I asked those uh, that I'm doing, for whom I'm doing premarital counseling. I said to the, to the woman, do you think that you can submit to him? And I said to the hopefully future husband, I said, do you think you can lead her? And we understand that you are voluntarily coming into this kind of relationship. And if you don't think you can submit to him, or if you don't think you can lead her, 
then well, let's talk about that. And at the end of the day, if you are committed to that, then you shouldn't get married. Find someone else. <clears throat> you know, that's a difficult time. I, will, I, can, I can attest to this. Um, the, uh, you have older children. I got one right here. Nick, and nothing very about on the spot. But the point of the matter is, you know, she's 23. She's a young adult. She, and she's an adult. She can make adult decisions, as Molly can. And they make those decisions, you know. But again, I, I, I have to tell them sometimes, you know, it's like 23 going on 27. Um, you still live within my household and you still have to um, abide by my rules and you need to help and you need to do all these things. And, but you also, it's a fine line. You have to, you know, you want them to grow. Sure. You want them to take reins of their lives. Um, so it, it, is, it is a, you know, there's a lot of heartfelt decisions and things of that nature, and as I've told them both, and I don't think they'll be surprised if I'll say this, they have to listen to me until I take their hand and hand it, put their hand into another man's hand and say, so thus saith the Lord, you know, this is now your husband. And so, and that's kind of how, that's my philosophy, I mean, that's kind of, I think it's biblical, but just some real life stuff that uh, everyone, if they have daughters, will eventually go through. Um, and they should be counseling their sons as well, and how to Handle those situations. So, mm-hmm. just yep. so this whole time uh, in 1 Peter 3, the, the husbands ought to be carrying the word. So that even if the wife doesn't speak a word, the, the husband knows what is expected of him. Okay? He should be hearing the word in, in church, he should be hearing the word as he avails himself of uh, the authoritative word, Scripture. What Peter is saying here does does not mean that a woman shouldn't speak at all to her husband about spiritual things, or even uh, offer godly counsel and correction. She still has that responsibility as a sister in Christ to her brother in Christ, to her husband. Women... Wives do well to speak wisely to their husbands about spiritual things and say, hey, you know, that what you did there was, was, was wrong. Um, there needs to be that, you know, the, the, the fourfold uh, process of change or the, the prophet of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16 applies to husband and wife relationship. You know, the Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, and we do well with those one another's to bring the word of God to bear on each other's lives. But whether a husband obeys God's word or not is not the determining factor for the woman's submission. Just because he disobeys does not mean that she can disobey. Uh, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, Michael, as they say. Yes. What if he's disobeying in a in a way that is not um, defined by any particular statutes, either in the moral or God's law or the civil law, but it just makes her life miserable. Do you want to give me a real life example? No, or do no you, but there are plenty of plenty of people who gray are areas. passive aggressive uh-huh. or lazy or rude or just mm-hmm. what if she's just plain old miserable and he takes advantage, you know, he just 
takes advantage of her but in no in no way that can be necessarily filmed. Yes. I mean, there, there's always that area. There is. And, and there are there is the recourse of ongoing conversation with well, I was going to say, Michael, with that fun, there may be like, there's like physical violence, you know, mm-hmm. domestic abuse, I guess, but what about emotional violence? Would that yeah. kind of fit your mind? Almost seem, it's kind of in the same, it's a different realm, it should be realm, but it's still a violence thing as a partner, or your spouse, I should say. But, sure. So, there's the recourse of ongoing conversation with your, with your spouse, and sharing how you are uh, receiving the person's behavior. Okay, there's that. And <coughs> thankfully one of the blessings of being in the church context is you're not alone. And, so that, and your husband is not alone. So there are others that can be involved in a discipleship way, um, even in a confrontational way if necessary. To get, to get through to this individual, that how you are treating your wife is not in accordance with universe 7, as we'll come to. Uh, you're not hearing God's word on how to treat this woman with honor, uh, and uh, you're not treasuring her the way, you, the way you're speaking to her, the way you are um, withholding certain things from her that are for her good. So, Ongoing conversation and even having uh, the church involved is those are ways of addressing these things. And we live in a fallen world, obviously, so it's not like every situation is going to come out exactly as we prefer. And there are many who suffer for righteousness' sake, as Peter has already told us, as Jesus has told us, and Sarah is put in a bit of a pickle here and is commended for her uh, submission, as we'll see in just a little bit. No husband is perfect. Uh, No husband's going to lead perfectly. Every wife is going to have to uh, feel the effects of poor leading to one degree or another. And this started all the way with Adam, who failed to lead his wife by crushing that serpent as it came in and by knocking that fruit out of her hand when he was right there next to her. And she says, here, have it. He should have just, no, get that out of here. Okay. So it begins there, and it manifests in a variety of ways. Uh, prayer, of course, is another recourse, uh, and it's not passive, right? It's very active. Um, these are simple we might think that they are ineffectual. The Lord allows his children to be put in difficult spots for his glory, for their learning certain things, patience, contentment, a variety of other uh, virtues. Not to say you can't try to get out of certain situations, obviously. Um, You can. But, of course, within the bounds of Scripture... So I don't, want to, I don't want to treat that lightly because it's not to be treated lightly. 
that's real daily affliction that needs to be brought to the Lord, to our Father in Heaven, who does see that pain and, um, and loves us to keep us in that pain at times and to walk us through it at other times. The woman's responsibility here is uh, to commend her godliness with, with works. Even if some do not obey the word, they, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see respectful and pure conduct. So Peter taps into this truth that a woman's conduct can be quite compelling, either for ill or for good. Can you think of a, a biblical example of a woman's conduct that compelled sin? Well, we have Jezebel when after Ahab moked, moked because he couldn't get Naboth's vineyard. She's like, they're the king, and she basically used her actions to get him the vineyard. Yep. Yeah, Jezebel would be one. Biblical and outside of the Bible examples of a woman's conduct that tended or that uh, even led a husband to to sin. Remember, in, it, when the Lord speaks to Adam, He says, "Because you listened to the voice of your wife, like that was a, that was a wrong thing. You shouldn't listen to the voice of your wife in that scenario. You should have been the one speaking into her life because the command was given to you, O oh man." That's why I'm coming to you. Yeah. Well, Paul commended, you know, Paul or uh, Timothy, I believe, his mom and grandmother for teaching him because he didn't have a father yep. uh, that was a believer, and um, so they taught him all that he, not all he did, but the scriptures and all the basis for all of that, and brought him to where, you know, Paul then took him and yes, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, so you've anticipated my second question, which was. Uh, are there examples of a, of a woman who, who is compelled someone to good? And so Lois and Eunice were great examples who taught uh, young Timothy. They, these were spiritual mothers, grandmothers. Deborah and, and uh, Judges would be a good example as well. There's Deborah over there, so I thought of Deborah. <laughs> What are some typical ways that a godly wife can promote the good? Can promote good? How can, how can a godly wife be a godly influence on her husband, whether he is a believer or an unbeliever? I think through patience and their endurance. And their godly response in any circumstance, using the scriptures as or the Bible or those themes, uh, when you know there's discussions going on or dealings with the children or any plethora of um, her speech, her actions, her calmness, mm -hmm. circumstances where the husband might be flipping out or you know um, or whatever you know 
you know, just be mad or angry, and, and she stays calm in some of those circumstances. This this is showing the peace and the, mm-hmm. the calmness of what Christ would have done. Um, Soft answer turns away wrath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and patience. Good. Good stewardship of the family resources. Good stewardship of the family resources. Good. What was that again? Yeah. Good stewardship of the resources in the family. Yes. Yeah. Foundational, you know, making things stable at the house so that you know, the husband's working and he comes home and then it's not in turmoil, it's not in disarray, it's not in, um, I don't know how you, anyway, yeah. but it's calm. It's, you can come and relax and you know, it's home. It's it's a refuge, if you will. Like not handy the baby? Yeah. <laughs> I, I believe the baby hand should go to the home. I'm not trying to say any of that. Right. I agree 100%. All day? Yeah. Just tag your it. Yeah. He is the father of that child. That's right. And twins, man. You guys know that. That's right. How about prayer? That'd be a wonderful way to promote good. Whether he knows it or not, and sometimes he might know. Sometimes he he might see you up early or late at night praying, yeah. or if you're at the dinner table and you, and you, um, you pray together, or he just maybe it's the unbelieving father, unbelieving husband, and he's agreed that you can pray with your children at the dinner table. He's just not going to um, he's not going to lead the prayer, and you can pray the prayer. Obviously, be careful about you know, throwing your husband under the bus in the, in the prayer. We don't, don't want to do that. Okay? Um, it can be those passive-aggressive prayers that we want to avoid. But a sincere, um, simple prayer for uh, the Lord's grace in the home and whatever the job situation is for the, for the husband. You know, there are many things that we can be praying for. John Brown says, The cheerful affectionate, constant performance of all conjugal duties, especially when it is made plain that this is the result of Christian principle, is fitted to make impression even on unthinking and insensible men. He speaks of the godly influence that a woman can have on her husband, especially when the wife is clear that she's doing these things because she loves Jesus. And recently uh, was made aware of, a, of, a, of an instance um, for which I was sought counsel. This, there were two unbelieving spouses, and uh, one of them became a believer. And now this individual is, nobody in the church, okay? Uh, this individual is wondering if she should confess her own infidelity in the marriage when she was an unbeliever. Ooh. And the counsel was hard because, of course, she um, fears the consequences. Uh, but the counsel was hard to receive, but it, I think it was good to receive the counsel that, yes, you ought to confess that infidelity and even trust the Lord in doing so and even uh, pray that this would be an opportunity where God's forgiveness would shine. Because you were unfaithful to the Lord all these years, and he brought you to himself, rescued you. Could be an example. And we, we use our own, as, as parents, 
spouses. We use our own um, examples of infidelity, examples of sin, uh, to highlight the gospel. We can. And, and sometimes an unbeliever in, in apologetics will, will uh, attack a believer and say, when you did this, you said this. I remember when I was over your house and you, you said that bad word, you took Jesus' name in vain. You say, you're right, I did. You know what, I don't, I don't need to defend myself on that, but I'm saved, I'm delivered, and the Lord is working in me. I want him to do the same for you. It's, so you can use our, your own uh, shortcomings as opportunities to highlight the, the gospel. And a woman can do that, or a husband can have a Godly influence on him when she fails, and when um, she excels, when she does well with what God has given her. Actions speak louder than words, and a woman's conduct can speak quite a bit. So uh, there's that command to be subject and be respectful. There's godly virtues here, and they, more than physical beauty, may win a man to Christ. So the language, uh, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, is, is literally translated uh, pure conduct in fear. Okay, pure conduct in fear. So what or whom is the godly woman to fear? God, yes. So chapter 2, verse 18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. That language there is, is fear. Okay? Um, it's the same language here. And then 1 Peter 3, 14, 15. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. On and on. The language that Peter uses here is... The direction, rather, is vertical, okay? The woman, the godly wife, is to have fear of the Lord over fear of man, even her own husband. Godly women are to be respectful of God, reverential toward God. This does not mean that wives uh, have now the freedom to disrespect their husbands. After all, Peter, or Paul in Ephesians 5.33 says that, the wife respect her husband. But it is to, to remind us that, there, that the vertical relationship is manifested horizontally, and um, you can't say, well, I, I fear God, so I don't love you, um, or um, my relationship, my concern is just the horizontal, and it has no, um, doesn't indicate anything about my relationship with the Lord. Peter is prioritizing for the godly wife, fear the Lord, as he will for the Christian, when, he, when the Christian is exhorted to uh, make a defense for the answer within him, it's to have a godly reverence, to have reverence for God over that unbeliever who is attacking him because of his suffering. So the wife's relationship to her husband comes from a worship of God, and one commentator, his last name is Slaughter, an interesting last name, uh, so it speaks to the motives. Wives do not submit in order to satisfy a husband's vanity or to promote his reputation. Neither do they submit to show how godly they are, 
nor to avoid conflict, nor to impress the neighbors, nor to manipulate their husbands, and not even because she thinks he is wise. She submits because of her relationship with and trust in God. A lot of different reasons, a lot of different motives a woman might have for submitting. Fundamentally, because of her relationship with the Lord. Because of her acknowledgement that this is where God has placed her. It's in this relationship, in this time, in this place. So this husband. He, Peter speaks about beauty. He says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Peter's not saying that external beauty has no place, or that it has no value, that it has no, that there ought to be no attention given it. Think about um, 1 John 3, 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Would you say that John does not want us to love in word or talk at all? No. No. The ellipsis there is, let us not love in word or talk only, but in deed and in truth. James says something similar as well. So Peter here is saying to the wives, don't let your beauty be restricted to the external, that you're so focused on what you look like that you get that right, then, then you've done your wifely duty, you know, being you know, good looking. No, that's not what he's saying. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 8 speaks about the importance of bodily discipline, and that does have some godliness. There's some value, rather. He says godliness will have some value, but godliness has much more value. And maintaining one's uh, appearance or looks, uh, caring for one's body, those are ways that we discipline the body. The external beauty is supposed to point to an internal beauty. Think about in, in the Old Testament, the clean, unclean, you shouldn't eat these animals, you, should, you can eat these animals. Um, if there is some bodily impurity, it needs to be taken care of. That's supposed to point to the internal. Okay. Uh, you can have all the external beauty that the world has to offer, or even all the beauty that God has given you and still be full of adultery. So, uh, let me just read Ezekiel 16, not all of it, because it's like, I don't know, 70 verses. But Ezekiel 16, verses 8 through 15, this is about Israel. So just before these verses, he says that um, there were, you were like this little baby on the side of the road, and no one had any I to pity you, no one even cut your umbilical cord. And you were just wallowing in your blood. Okay, but I said, and I said to you in your blood, live. Okay. And verse 8, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. 
and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. So you looked like Esther. Okay. And your renown went forth, from, uh, went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declared the Lord God. So all that beauty was given her by God. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown, and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. Israel, the nation, was a beautiful nation, and took that beauty and used it, prostituted um, with other nations. In fact, as if you kept reading Ezekiel 16, she was quite different from other prostitutes, in that she actually paid her, uh, she paid others to uh, be with her rather than getting something for it. So, um, just because you are given you know, beauty, external beauty, uh, doesn't mean that you are internally faithful to God, that you are internally holy. A woman's outer garment should represent well Christ's garment. The internal beauty is most important, of course, and it shouldn't stay hidden if it is truly beautiful. And internal beauty lasts forever. It talks about an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Imperishable beauty. Something that um, the Lord <coughs> takes and uh, even more brightly beautifies at the resurrection. This spirit, uh, this demeanor of the woman is to be quiet to be well-ordered, to be peaceable. The same Greek words, or at least the themes in 1 Peter 3 here, are used in Isaiah 66, 22. The Lord will look to the one who is humble and contrite, and trembles at his word. That word contrite is the word here for uh, quiet spirit. And notice the connection with trembles at his word, and connecting here with, with Peter, with his view that the godly woman conducts herself in fear, fear of the Lord, trembles at the Lord's word, who fears God over man. So there's that reverence for God that's being commended here. And there is that contrition, there's that um, peaceable spirit, because she has known the peace of her peace, Jesus Christ. She's not contentious, as the Proverbs uh, exhort her not to be, or tempestuous. She's not a storm of discontentment in the home. She's not a storm of emotions just attacking the husband. It's not to say that she's, that she's always satisfied with what he says or with what he does. 
but she handles uh, she handles well her own spirit that she might approach her husband wisely. Again, a slow answer turns away wrath. She is content because Christ has well ordered her spirit with his peace. She is gentle. The godly woman leads a life of humility, not of harshness to her husband. She follows him who is gentle and lowly in heart. This word gentle in 1 Peter 3 is the same word that Jesus uses to speak of himself. He says, come to me, all who are weary and laden, I will give you rest. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Of course, this means this, this humility, this gentleness, and even this quiet spirit isn't just for the woman. It's for the Christian as well. It's for all the Christians. We all, we all ought to be uh, trying to uh, imitate Christ. The question that wives need to ask themselves, any Christian really needs to ask himself, is in whose eyes do we want to be precious? So 1 Corinthians 7, 33 and 34 says that husbands do seek to please their wives. And that's not a bad thing. A husband does well to please his wife, provided that he's not displeasing the Lord in so pleasing his wife. And vice versa. The, the wife, because she's in this relationship with her husband, she should be looking for ways that she can please him. Not to the point where she is doing a disservice to the Lord, where she's disobeying the Lord. But uh, Paul says, it. here's one reason why some might not want to get married, is because when they do get married, they have other interests. They need to be looking at how they can please one another. Okay, So it's not wrong to try to please your husband. It's not wrong to try to please your wife. When your wife becomes your head, or when uh, the husband is over the head of Christ, well, then you've overstepped, obviously. Ideally, husband-pleasing would go well together with God-pleasing. You know, again, that, that vertical should have an effect on the horizontal, and the horizontal should reflect the woman's uh, love for the Lord. In a word, the godly wife puts on Christ as she approaches her husband. Thomas Watson says, All the graces display themselves in their beauty. Meekness is the ornament. The saints' graces are weapons to defend them, wings to elevate them, jewels to enrich them, spices to perfume them, stars to adorn them, cordials to refresh them. And does not all this work for good? He's commending the, the godly virtues of wife. I don't have time to uh, read the whole text, but Peter appeals to Sarah. And if you read Genesis 18, 9 through 15, you say, Sarah doesn't really come off looking good in that. And she's even laughing uh, about that, that she would even have a child, right? What are you talking about? And the Lord's like, uh, no, but you did laugh. I didn't laugh. Yeah, but you did. Okay. What, is, what, what Peter is commending here is at least one thing. 
He's not saying, look at all of Sarah's life and all that you did and follow her and all that you did. But he does pull out something. Namely, she refers to Abraham as Lord. It's not uppercase L-O-R-D, Abraham is my Lord and I bow down to you, your will be done, O Abraham, and I will follow you blindly. It's not what, he, what Peter's getting at. Uh, but before we move on here, one, one, one man, John Trapp, says, he highlights the grace of God in being so imperfect a creature like Sarah. He says, See here now, in a great heap of sin, God can find out his own and accept it. There was no good word in all the whole sentence spoken by Sarah, but this, that she called her husband Lord. God is pleased to single out this and let it as a precious diamond in a gold ring to Sarah's eternal commendation. That's a great quote. There's grace to be found. You read Hebrews 11. We are exhorted to follow them. They are faithful men and women. But if you take all of those individuals and say, there's... You can find something that's not commendable in their lives. But God shows imperfect people, imperfect people, to, to help along the way. And Sarah was one example of that. By the way, most of these quotes that I've gotten are from the new... They're not paying me to do this, but Crossway has uh, come up with a new study Bible course. Another study Bible, right? <laughs> But it's the church history study Bible. And the comments are from people from all church history. Must have been hard to edit that. Like so many people have commented on all of scripture. And so they, they have these nuggets of quotes. And instead of an explanation of any given verses, it's an explanation through a particular quote from church history. And I have found those quotes to be gold. Okay. So Sarah followed her husband even when he was not full of faith himself. And even when she was in quite the predicament. You think of Genesis 12 and 20 when she was presented twice as, you know, not his wife, but as sister. And that's to put, put a wife in that situation is rather precarious and um, shows that Abraham himself needed. Keep trusting in the Lord. For me, I would never even think about saying, uh, yeah, she's not my wife. She's she's not my wife. She's my sister. I wouldn't think of that, but I'm not going (coughs) to condemn Abraham here. Uh, But Sarah, was she still acknowledged her husband as her head. That's what it means here is, is Lord, okay? This is... By the way, Liz has never referred to me as Lord, and I have never even asked her or even thought about it, okay? And I'm not putting up, I'm not saying, you guys, you women, you need to start calling your husbands Lord. You come in, yes, Lord. What can I do for you, Lord? Okay. No. Uh, but that submissive spirit, a quiet, peaceful spirit, uh, that acknowledges, this is the husband that I chose, and God has given to me, and he is to spiritually lead me. So finally, and that's a little, it's a little frustrating, but um, kind of goes with the, the text here. Verse 7. 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You might think that Peter is just a sexist here. Down with Petrine patriarchy, as they would say, right? Six verses on women be subject, and one verse for husbands. He's really going easy on the husbands. No, I don't think that's uh, that's why Peter is moved to have six verses for women and one for the wife, uh, one for the husband. Peter has been mainly addressing those under human authority. Not those who wield it. He's been talk- he talked about rulers and masters and husbands. Because that's, that's been the focus. But husbands should hear the word. Live with your wives. Okay, so live with her. That's not just be in the same house with her and cause all kinds of problems in the house and provoke your wife to wrath. Really help her to... Um, Take advantage of you know contentment and, and submissiveness and you know slow answer or uh, soft answer turns away wrath and really put her through the test. That's not what we ought to be doing. We'd be living at peace and harmony with her to share life with her to be direct. Don't be a jerk to your wife. Don't come across as the taskmaster. Like she's the one. To you know, serve you. <coughs> she is to serve you, and you're to serve her. The whole you know, idea of service is Christian. Okay, you serve in your role, and she serves in her role. And you married the woman after all. So don't be, don't be a pain. Don't be a thorn in her side. And you might say, well, I did marry. I married her, but she's changed so much. She's not the woman I, I thought I'd marry. And do you think you're the man, the dreamy man that she thought she was marrying? Okay. <coughs> if you're having a hard time, she might be having a hard time too, with you. <laughs> it's mutually difficult. Being tractable is not a passive occupation. Being tractable? Right. Yeah. That's why she has all this, this um, exhortation, because she has a really hard job. She does. I mean, it's hard to be responsible for the outcome of the decision, you know, to, to have the final responsibility laid at your feet. But, but being, being leadable mm-hmm. and being amenable, that, that's really difficult, too. That takes, that takes active engagement. Yeah. Not just being a doormat. Yes. To work at it. The Bible does not commend doormat behavior. Whenever you hear word to wives to submit, it's not, go ahead and be walked on. But even if you are walked on, Christ still loves you and he's not forgotten you. Because sadly, yes, some wives are walked on and are very poorly treated. But this man cannot do his job if I'm not doing mine. He cannot, you cannot lead people who will not be led. So. The, the woman is a helpmate. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Both helpmates, right? 
She is to help. She is the help suitable for the husband. Yes, there are respective roles, and you work well together. Um, there's mutually supportive roles. Even in that word, helpmate is used of, of God. He, so the husband is supposed to um, live according to knowledge. Uh, it says, um, in an understanding way. Okay, that's, that's not, the focus from Peter is not, try to understand your wife. Though that is, obviously, to be commended. You need to hear what your wife thinks. And listen to her emotions. Hear her concerns. Walk through life with her. But it's actually, um, the language that Peter uses here is, is, is as a man who is um, listening to the word of God. In fact, this language is, is used in chapter 2, verse 19, uh, mindful of God. Okay, So the husband is to be mindful of God. That means the husband is to submit himself to the word of God as he seeks to lead his wife. He is not the ultimate head. He has another head, Christ. And he will be um, held accountable accountable to how he has treated his wife. And he'll be accountable to God. He should understand that his relationship with his wife is one of co-heirs. The wife is a co-heir. One who equally, because in Christ, has the same position, the same identity, the same standing before God, she's not less justified because she submits to you. She's not less sanctified. She might actually be more sanctified because she has to submit to you and you're really testing her. If you are in Christ, whether you are a master or a slave, a parent, a child, a, a man or a woman, a Jew or a Gentile, you have the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so you, as a husband, should treat your wife as such. And he ends here with a warning. that God does not look favorably on those who lord it over others. This language of prayers being hindered actually anticipates verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Men Elders, rulers, and on and on, who misuse God-given authority have no reason to believe that God will bless their endeavors. And uh, we, are, we conclude with this thankfulness. We are thankful to the church's husband, whose prayers are always answered for the growth of his bride until he returns to bring to completion the gift of life. Let's pray. Our wonderful God, redemption, thank you for... This word, it is difficult. Uh, you know, it's hard, to, uh, it's hard to submit, and it's hard to lead. And Lord, we need your grace to fulfill our respective roles in, here on, on this earth. Uh, for your glory, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, uh, give us more grace, more faith, more perseverance and virtue, and uh, beautify us inside out. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.